when I first heard about the Nakba from Palestinians, a lot of other Israelis and Jews would say, how can you sit with these people? They're lying. They're accusing Israel of these terrible things. And we know it's not true. And I thought what they were saying was not true either. But you get to know people and you go, well, are all these people lying? Thousands of stories, very similar to Farfa and worse, far worse. After a while, you have to either remain in that darkness of your, your early indoctrination and refuse to hear anything else or open yourself and align yourself with humanity. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Miko, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks to you, I just finished Farha. I love to keep things to the last minute, so I just watched it this morning. So what'd you think? Oh, man. There's that famous quote, a million people dead is a statistic. One person dead is a tragedy. Yeah. And that movie is such a good example of the fact that people are protesting it. It's just like such clear, it's, these are historical facts, but you happen to be told it in a way that emotionally resonates so much. And that is so powerful. And they know that it's powerful. And so they're upset about it. I have a feeling it's the principle that guided. It's a personal story. So, you know, they're, they're telling a true story of a particular woman. But it's very true because it's a single person. It's a single story. It's a single woman. And you see the details moment by moment. It's gut-wrenching as opposed to, like you said, when you see scenes of movies with thousands dead, it becomes a, a statistic or it's hard to feel anything. Whereas this movie, I thought the movie was gutsy. I think the reaction, of course, is interesting. The Zionist hysteria is interesting, but unexpected. But I think I thought the movie was very gutsy, very interesting. It hits you right in the gut. It wasn't at all what I was expecting. Yeah. I was going to say, the, Omo is the who plays the dad, I actually know him. He's a friend of mine. Really? Yeah. And so I wrote to him and I said, wow, it's very powerful. But of course, the whole movie is Farha, is her. And not to give away too much, but uh, there are so many aspects of that movie that I found shocking. I'm sitting on the sofa watching a movie to see what's going on, what it's all about. And then boom, it was a real, it was a real punch in the gut. So I'm, I was impressed by that. And I was impressed by the courage of, the, of making a movie that is made in such a way that it does that to you. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, of course, you get to know the characters, right? You get, you've said, you've talked about before how you see such a beautiful landscape. You see this village, it's beautiful. And you just get to know Farha as a person. Like, oh, she's got this struggle. There's the tradition and there's what she wants to do. And she's a student and she's different yeah. than the other girls. The other girls are playing around and she's reading her book. Right. And yeah. that could have been a story too. That could have been a book. That could have been a movie about a girl who decides to convince her dad to break a little bit of tradition, to go to school, all that kind of stuff. And then in the middle of, and I think this is why it's so authentic. It's because there's so many stories that you hear from Palestinians who lived through that time where they just happened to be visiting relatives in another town. Suddenly their town was gone Yeah, and they had no reason to, there's no expectation that this fixed storm was brewing. And suddenly that's it. They're, they don't know where their families are. They don't know where their, their village is gone. Stories of, of course, about massacres and forced exile. But life was just, people were just living their life and then boom, except for, and they show that in the movie too, that there were a few people who were anticipating this and saying, look, we need to get prepared because something is brewing. But most people, most Palestinians were just living their life when this thing just hit them. And it hit them so incredibly hard. But yeah, the Israel and its agencies all over the place are trying to boycott it and criticizing Netflix for showing it. 
And of course that, that of course, that fits, obviously that's the case you wear it. And obviously they feel that this is hitting too close to home and they don't like that. And it's interesting because I was listening to Netanyahu's interview with Jordan Peterson that I think it took place a couple of weeks ago. And it's very difficult to hear because they're both such self-righteous, uh, pretend to be such intellectuals. And they're really two bags of hot air. It's really what they are, right? two bags of hot air trying to impress each other. And Netanyahu has made up this entire narrative, historical narrative of what happened in Palestine, which there's no, it's, he just must have sat there and decided, okay, how do I, I'm just going to pull this out of some dark hole. Narrative. <laughs> some and dark hole. I was trying to keep the podcast family friendly. I am trying to keep it. And you wonder, how does they, and then he, and then he has the gall to say, well, all the books I've ever written, nobody's ever argued the historical. And I'm thinking, well, both because you don't present historical facts, you present, I don't know, science fiction. It's stories. It's, yeah. It's, stories. it's not. So according to him, and I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to do a longer video uh, and I will actually go step by step to, to tear it down. It's going to take a little bit longer than what we have here. The time we have here, he made up the story that when the Arabs came to the land of Israel in the seventh century, they colonized it and kicked out the Jews. And Jordan Peterson is listening and nodding. And I'm going, how does anybody listen to such nonsense and not rip him to shred? And instead he listens to him such, such gravity and asks him more questions and asks him to help educate him and his listeners, because some of these young people are prone to, to be influenced by the Palestinians. And then he said, they did nothing with the country and they left, they were kicked out the Arabs eventually. And then after the Jews started coming back and make the desert bloom and make the country prosperous. Then the Arabs wanted to come back and the Jews welcomed them. They said, sure, you can come, of course. And then uh, they created a state and they invited everybody to stay. They said, yeah, we can all live here together. But then the Arabs created this false narrative where the Jews kicked them out. This is his story. This is what he talks about. This is the entire interview. And it's funny in one way because it's so absurd, but it's also dangerous because this is the prime minister of Israel, and for reasons beyond understanding, since he was reelected and until today, he has been on so many broadcasts and he's been interviewed both by the networks and people like Jordan Peterson and you have Bill Maher and everybody else. And it's, and they take him so seriously and nobody challenges him. Nobody challenges him. This war criminal who's been indicted for corruption, who has led this monstrosity called the state of Israel for over a decade. And it's now brought in and has given enormous power to some of the most racist, violent thugs in the history of Zionism. Really, I don't think there have been such racist, dangerous thugs in power throughout the entire history of the Zionist movement. And these are people who actually believe that killing Palestinians is an act of heroism and have no problem passing laws and instituting policy that will, they will make the last 75 years seem like a walk in the park. I think, I think that's what we're about to see, but nobody's challenging him. Nobody's challenging. Why are you letting the, why are you giving these people such power? Why are you even negotiating with these people? And that's very troubling. That's very troubling. The fact that nobody's challenging this guy and nobody's challenging the narrative is is very dangerous. This is how fascists and racists gain power. Yeah, and the little bit that I've heard about sort of people who have studied fascism, they say that even the littlest bit of resistance helps inspire other people to do resistance. And obviously there's so much resistance against Israel 
and the U.S.'s oppression of Palestinians. But yes, but to, yeah, I'm surprised that you don't see more journalists talking to Netanyahu and actually challenging him. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he makes sure not to talk to any of the journalists who might be willing to. Obviously, he's not talking with any real left-wing, anti-imperialist, anti-racist sort of journalists. What I'll say is... Yeah, but anybody who's talking to him has got to challenge him. Nobody probably should. Somebody like Jordan Peterson, I'm not expecting it. Somebody like Bill Maher, I'm really glad that you covered Bill Maher. Yeah, he has the ability to question these things. But the truth is Bill Maher has had a bit of a left-wing branding, but has been pretty conservative and very, I think, Islamophobic for a long time. I, what I will say is some of the coverage of Farha, that's what, one of the powerful things about the movie. So you've got right-wing Netanyahu sort of version of history that just totally skips over the Nakba. And then Farha has gotten through to people at the New York Times, people at CNN, which some people on the right will say, oh, those are left-wing outlets. But no, they're mostly right-wing. And it has gotten some really good coverage. And again, I think it's because it speaks from such a personal perspective that it's hard to deny. Yeah, and you know, there was the movie The Present, which was which won, I believe it won the Academy Award or was a runner-up for the Academy Award for short films. So that was another Palestinian, excellent Palestinian film, a short one, a 28-minute one, but about a year ago. So it's good. Yeah, of course, it's important that the narrative is coming through, but you have the same force, not only trying to counter it, but completely coming up with a uh, with a narrative that is so absolutely insane. And then, and you've ha- and you have a media that doesn't challenge them. And you know what's interesting? Over the last, I would say, at least a couple of years, the darling of the Israeli media has been Itamar ben Gvir. Now, today he is the all-powerful of national security, and he has within his authority police, the prisons, the border police, which is a militarized, we talked about that, a militarized police yeah. unit. And, and he demanded and received control over their actions in the West Bank, whereas before it was under the military control. Command. And uh, he's going to make life for Palestinians worse than anything we've seen before. And I've said this already. Now, this guy came, he was nothing. He was a dropout. He was a delinquent running around the streets and he was taken in by Mayor Kahana. And I remember as a kid, I remember Mayor Kahana, his office in Jerusalem, seeing, walking by it. And uh, wait, so what was Kahana's? He was the no, Mayor Kahana was his name. Mayor Kahana. Oh, sorry. I call him okay. rabbi. I try, I try, I try to, so I avoid, I, I don't want to call him rabbi. I think it's a, I think it's a, Terrible thing to call him a racist, a lunatic like that, a rabbi. But no, not Mayor, Mayor Kahana. That was his name, Mayor. Okay. So he didn't have an official position in the government. No, are you kidding? He was an outcast. Nobody spoke to him. Even the, the even the, in the 80s when he actually was allowed to run and, and did win a seat in the Knesset, the Likud government that was in power, nobody would speak to him. Nobody would sit next to him. Wow. He was an outcast. Even by Likud standards, Shamir was prime minister. Nobody would speak to him. And so he took on these, these nobodies and he gave him a little bit of education. And Israel has these law schools, these colleges where you can get a law degree and they're very easy to get into. So if you can't get into the university, which is hard to get into, if you want to go to law school, you can get into one of these colleges and get a law degree very easy. And that's what these guys did. So Ethan Veer and all of his people are all, wow. and now he shaved his beard a little bit and he's wearing a suit and he looks a little bit more and he talks about democracy and civil rights and all that kind of stuff. But he's been the darling of the Israeli media for, the, for at least a couple of years now. And they have given him a legitimacy. And I was watching, even the last couple of days, I was watching interviews with him as he entered office. Or even the one, and a few before he entered office. But it was obvious that he was going to be the incoming minister of, of this new and enlarged ministry that was created for him. 
with an enormous, unprecedented budget that he demanded in God. And nobody's challenging him. Nobody's challenging this man. And he is a racist. He is a thug. He, he, I don't even know how to describe him. People talk about other fascist and racist dictators that, that came from being nobodies and suddenly they were, they were leading armies and leading states. He's exactly that kind of guy. And it's, it's worrisome how the media is so accepting and so willing to, to just engage in, in the civil conversation with this man and nobody is challenging him on the real issues. And that's how you make a guy like that legit. And then you have all these protests and people are talking about all these protests. So there was 80,000 or 100,000 Israelis in the streets in Tel Aviv protesting, but it's only because they're concerned that some of their privilege may be taken away by this new government and they have a good reason to be concerned. But this has nothing to do with the fact that the, this man is going to destroy this new government, is going to just to do everything they can to as quickly as possible, destroy whatever is left of Palestine in Palestine and make life for Palestinians hell like it's ever been before. Yeah, the hope is that films like this will get people's attention and will, I think more and more people are supporting Palestine. It's still, that's not even where close to being represented in the U.S. Congress, for example, but there, is, there are statistics showing that people, Americans, including young Jews, are very much changing their view. So that's yeah, perhaps. That's and that's why we need to organize and that's why we need to share things. And like I said, every little bit that you share and you speak up really does help. Yeah, I agree. I believe that's true. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday, I had dinner with a, with one of the men who I admire most, isn't it? He's a Reverend Gr Graylin Hagler, and he's been the pastor at the Plymouth Congregational Church here in Washington for many years. He just retired. He's probably one of the most courageous activists in that I've ever met. And uh, I told him that I was, we were just talking and I mentioned to him that I was in, I'm writing this book about the anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodox Jews and their history and their story and kind of, and so just before COVID, I was in Central and Eastern Europe to go to some of the places where these, these people came from. And many of the larger communities here in New York are, of course, descendants of Holocaust survivors and so on. And I was in two places. One is the city of Satmer, or used to be called Satmer, now it's Satumare, which is from, that's the source of the great, which is, I think, the largest one, the largest ultra-Orthodox group there is a Hasidic group. And uh, it, it used to be a city of about 45,000. And there were about 18,000 Jews, 15, 18,000 Jews living there. In the synagogue where the Satmer Rebbe, who eventually came to survive the Holocaust, came to New York and started the Satmer movement here. But the synagogue is still there. And, uh, and then one day, in a matter of two weeks or something, the Nazis came in. It was part of Hungary. It was, Satmer was in Hungary before the borders changed. The Nazis came in. Within two weeks, they pushed the entire community, 18,000 people, into the ghetto. And the ghetto, and I had somebody take me around. Some of the, some, one of the very few Jews who still live there took me around and showed me, the, showed me the ghetto. And some of the homes, they would take a home and they'd put 10, 20 families in a home. And on some of the homes, you see the names scratched on the bricks. The names of the families that lived in that home were scratched on the bricks outside the, outside these homes that still, that's, they're still standing. And then within a month, they were all taken to Auschwitz. And out of 18,000, I think 2,000 survived. But my point, my, my point was, so this is about a third of a city, a small city, a city of 40, 45,000. It's a small city. A third of the population one day are taken and, and basically and sent to, to death. This thing happens to them, right? 
Now, a third of the population, that means somebody's neighbors, right? They were neighbors, they, they, didn't, they lived in the city. So these were neighbors of some people, store owners, shopkeepers. It could be your butcher or your tailor or a good family or friend of your children, whatever, right? And where were all these people when this happened to these Jewish, to that Jewish community? Where were the neighbors? Where were the shop? Where were the people that used to shop in their stores? Where were the people that did business with them? Where were the people that had coffee with them? Where were they? How did they let this happen? And then another story that I encountered when I was on this trip, I was, I crossed the border into Ukraine and I traveled to Mezhiboj, which is the town where the Hasidic movement was established. And it's a, it's a place of pilgrimage for Orthodox Jews. And there too, one night, Ukrainian Nazis came in, the 3,000 Jews that lived in that little town. And it's still like a shtetl. It's still, you still see the farmers with the big beards and then the, the horse and carriage doing their thing. It's a beautiful, very picturesque town. And in one night, they took 3,000 Jews, dug took them outside just slightly, just a little bit outside of the village, dug these enormous trenches and buried them. And today there's a, a very humble, but very moving monument there. And I'm thinking this was an even larger percentage of the community because this was the largely Jewish community there. And what were the neighbors? And Reverend Hagler said to me, the way it happens, I said, how does it happen? He goes, the way it happens is what we see now, the way the media coddled Trump. The way the media is now coddling in Israel, they're coddling Netanyahu for sure, but they're coddling people like Ben Gvir. It creates this sense of legitimization of this very racist, violent narrative. So then when the stormtroopers come in, people are either not shocked because they've kind of gotten used to this narrative and accepted it, or they're intimidated, of course, and so they don't want to speak up. But this is the process. And this is the process by which we can see something so horrific happened to our neighbor and then stay home and do nothing. Because this is the thing that ever since I was there, it just, because when you're in a city and you see the homes and you hear from somebody who lives there, it becomes real. You walk through these towns in Ukraine and you walk through these towns and some of them used to be Poland, some of them used to be Hungary. The borders changed after World War II. But you walk through these towns and it's like you walk and this Ukraine is beautiful. And these countries and these cities are really beautiful. And you feel like you're walking on, and you are, you're walking on, on, on graves, you're walking on places where people were killed, or at least taken, shipped out to kill, to be killed. And uh, that's how, and I think, so where were the neighbors? How did this happen? There's still stores, especially in, in South Tomara, for example, that's a new name of software now that's in, in Romania, Never mind that, but there's still stores, buildings, old buildings that have the original shop names on them. And these were Jewish businesses. You know, in the synagogue, like I said, the synagogue where the Satmar Rebbe used to, was the chief rabbi, is still there and so on. And he, a lot of people were suddenly taken and killed. And where was everybody else? And how do you get to a point where you have a, such a large population of people willing to see such cruelty, such brutality and do nothing and just sit there by and large? You know, of course, there's always a few people. I'm sure there are a few people here and there who may have tried to do something. But what do they call it in Israel? It. The, the innocent among the nations or something? I'm sorry? In Israel, the Holocaust Museum, they had a term. They said the innocent among the nations or something. It was uh, the righteous among the nations, the people. Yeah, these are pe people who stood up and people right, who just, went to save Jews and, and so forth. And so to bring this back to Farah, so clearly you're drawing some parallels between people not speaking up for the massacre of Jews and people not taking action to stop the massacre of Palestinians by Israelis, by Jews. Yeah. I think it's always tricky and dangerous to make comparisons of massacres and ethnic cleansings and oppression. 
But what I'll say, what's I noticed about the criticism of Farha is you've got people saying, you're making it sound like the Israelis were Nazis. Oh, you're trying to do a reverse Anne Frank story. And it's just, in that case, it's like them just looking at reality and then coming to this conclusion, making this accusation. Um, and it's just, there are parallels, right? And I don't think it's helpful to regularly accuse Israelis of being Nazis. I just, I, yeah. And the scale is totally different and it's not worth comparing. Such well, is that what I was doing? The fact yeah. is, like you said, when these guys, when you see the reaction, my thing, my, what I said, if the hat fits, yeah. if you're jumping up and down like this, then you must feel that this is accurate. And the thing is also, when I, when I first heard about the Nakba, it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe 20, 25 years ago from Palestinians. When I began my journey, so to speak, I was sitting with Palestinians in San Diego and they're telling their stories and I told the stories of the Nakba. And a lot of other Israelis and Jews would come through these. This is part of this dialogue, living room dialogue phenomenon that was taking place at the time. And it was pretty popular in, in Southern California. It was an organized effort to have living room dialogues? It was not organized. It was, it started and then it picked up and people did these things. And this was in, in Southern, in California, it was quite popular. In San Diego, there were several groups. Okay, so there were groups. So some people yeah. like reached out to you as an Israeli said, hey, we want to talk to you about this. I actually reached out because I heard they existed and I started looking and I found one. And that was the beginning of my discovery that Palestine, beginning of my journey in Palestine. And then, and other Israeli, other Jews, American Jews would come and leave. And they would say, how can you sit with these people? Look at what they're saying. They're lying. They're accusing Israel of these terrible things. And we know it's not true. And I didn't know, I thought what they were saying was not true either. But I thought to myself, number one, could they all be lying? I mean, after a while you sit and you get to know people and you get to know them personally. And that was part of the purpose of the dialogue is for people to get to know each other. And you go, are all these people lying? So did they all get together, all these Palestinians, oh, some of, which, some of whom didn't know each other until we all met. And they all got together and there was this enormous conspiracy to tell all these stories, thousands and thousands and thousands, and thousands of stories, very similar to Farfa and worse, far worse, which today, of course, are documented, documented by Ilan Pape, they're documented by, and uh, by a lot of documentaries and by, I mean, it's, the Nakba is no longer a secret, even though Netanyahu was trying to, it's just impossible that all of these people got together and made it up because it's really important, hard to believe, but this is the reality. Can you remember some of those first details that you first heard and were like, this is a lie? And then, but it's stuck in your head and you... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can you share some of those details? Well, two that come to, or two or three that come to mind was one of the gentlemen, Ibrahim, who we, we're still friends, dear, dear man, he lives in San Diego. He's from the city of Lid. And the city of Lid, there was a terrible massacre and uh, the ethnic cleansing campaign was particularly cruel. And there's a story, there's several, over a hundred people hid in the mosque, the Hamshan Mosque, which is right in the center of the city. And... Uh, the Palmaf, the Israeli terrorist group that was, my father was an officer in, but that wow. was operating in Lid, sent a guy with a Fiat missile, which was an anti-tank missile, and to shoot a missile into that, uh, into the mosque. And the, the, it makes a very small hole. It made a really small hole in the window. And actually the guy that shot the missile, you can find him on YouTube telling the story. And then they left it. And then he went in and just took a peek. He opened the door and he didn't see any people. The enormity of the explosion was such that, and this is horrible, this is horrible, I know, but people's bodies, people were just completely obliterated and stuck to the walls. It was horrifying. A week or two later, the Palmach rounded up, I don't know, 10, 20 men from the city and sent them into the mosque to clean it up. 
And Ibrahim's father was one of these people. And Ibrahim told the story about his father was made to, was sent into this mosque to clean up. Now, my father was in the Haggadah. You think I can believe a story like this? And there, I don't want to go on and on, but there are other similar stories of things that happened in Jerusalem and things happened outside of Jerusalem and so on. But a guy like me, a person like me, who's learned about the glory and the, and the heroism of the Haganah and the Palmach in 1948 and so on, how could I possibly believe these things? It's like Bean was an was, was his commander there, and I grew up to admire him as a, and so on. But what are you going to do? This is, after a while, you have to come to terms with the fact that you have to either remain in that darkness of your early indoctrination and refuse to hear anything else or open yourself and align yourself with humanity and say, no, this happened, this is wrong, and therefore, this is what I believe we need to do now. But I saw many Israelis get up and leave, and so we can't listen to this. They're lying. They're calling us Nazis. They're comparing us to this and that. Yeah, nobody ever said that, by the way. Nobody that I ever heard compare, made these comparisons. But the stories are horrifying. And again, the man who shot that missile, he's, I recently saw him telling the story on YouTube. Can you remember his name or how we would find that on YouTube? I can maybe do a clip of it or something. I will have to look for it. I can't remember. And I think you've written about this. So we and I've written about Lid, yes. And I've written the story and I've written about Lid, yes. So I even brought a link to my article. And in the article, I might actually have a link to the video. Yeah. Okay, great. On Mint News, I'm interested. So you might, might be a way to, to find the to find that. And today there's quite, there, there are quite a few other there are movie Tanturas out and there's, there's plenty of Israeli, older Israelis who are telling the stories about the massacres there and rape and so forth. This is what happened. This is it. This is what happened. And this is what the movie's showing. And to keep lying about it and keep trying to put all these smoke screens and reject it and say, we the Jews couldn't pause. This is nonsense. Time to move on. You accept it and you move on and then you do everything you can to make sure it never happens again. And you create a reality. You fight with all your might to create a reality where tolerance is the law. Tolerance is what's the only thing that's allowed is accepted. And intolerance, there should be no tolerance for intolerance. I don't know if I ever told you the story. If somebody asked me once, I was in South Africa, speaking at a university and an African student asked me, what do I think about the limits of tolerance? And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? It took me a while to say, what's this guy, what's this, what this young man saying? And, and there was a Zionist in the room trying to counter everything I was saying. And you're saying, well, why are we talking? Were you, having a, were you having like an organized debate with the Zionist? No, he was in the audience and he just came to, to ask, to challenge me. And so this young African student said to me, why, why do we need, basically there need to be limits on tolerance. People like that, people who support racism, support violence, support fascism are not willing to engage in, in a real conversation, a truthful conversation, should not be tolerated, should not be invited to the table. And I believe that. And that was a brilliant, I'll never forget it. It was almost 10 years ago that this happened. I'll never forget this young man. But at one point, if people are not willing to ensure tolerance and ensure that these things are recognized and are not repeated, then they don't have a seat at the table as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, that's, so this movie, we started talking about this movie, we talked about a bunch of, a lot of other things, but it's interesting to see this whole campaign Starting with the Tadeo, going all the way down to down the ranks through through uh, people like Ben Gvir who want to continue this. His people were marching in Sheikh Jarrah just a few days ago, shouting one more Nakba, one more Nakba, one more Nakba. So how can you deny there was a Nakba and then say we're going to have to do another Nakba at the same time? And then and then you've got the ADL here also who are working very hard to make sure that the Zionist narrative prevails, and other organizations stand with us and so forth. So I think it's a tough, an important struggle. I think, I think it's really important for people to, to start willing to tolerate the lies and the mythology and get real and start demanding justice.
Yeah, I think it's really important this what you're talking about. You've got exactly you've got Nenya at the top, but then I saw this very short clip of from the Israel ad, advocacy movement. There they say they have thirty thousand signatures petitioning Netflix to not show Farha. And yeah, it's quite possible they did find thirty thousand people. And but the people they talked to, it's just oh, this is a lie. You're inciting violence against Jews by saying that some Jews did a terrible thing. It's just, if that's your view of history, it's really hard to be honest and to learn and to, well, stop the ongoing Nakba. And it's important to challenge, I think, the people like Bill Maher and Peterson and the networks to demand that they start challenging these people when they interview them. If you're going to have a guy like oh, on your broadcast, if you're going to interview him, challenge him for crying out loud. What's the point of this nonsense? These people need to be challenged. What the hell are you being? Why, why would you be a journalist? Why would you sit with a guy like Netanyahu across from me if you're not going to challenge him? What's the point of doing this kind of work if you're not going to be honest? So I think that's also that's up to us as consumers to demand more of these people. Anyway, we got to wrap it up because I have a live interview in about five minutes. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. I'll have the, I'll have the thing, I'll have the videos out soon uh, where I really tear apart this Jordan Peterson interview with Netanyahu because I think it needs to be done. So I'll have that up and running uh, hopefully in the next week or so. And um, yeah. And yeah. And that's an example of we'll have some highlights from it and then people can see the whole thing on Patreon. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, So that's a reason to sign up for Patreon. Of course, we love to produce all these podcasts because it's so important. All these podcasts for free. But we just have some extra content at Patreon if you are up for supporting us there. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. I'll Thank see you. you. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Hey, this is Ellie Gerzon again. We are going to try to do something where at the end of every episode, we're going to have a call to action. If you want to just listen, that's wonderful. But we're going to offer a call to action uh, after every episode. And in this case, very simple watch Farha. It's right on Netflix, and if you've already seen it, then suggest to someone else that they watch it. I'll just say I'm somebody who's often a little hesitant to watch something that'll be very disturbing. It is very upsetting. It is awful, some of the things that are depicted, but it's done in such a way that I really appreciated it, and I'm really glad I watched it. So that's your call to action uh, for this episode. Please let us know if you have other ideas for things that we should urge people to do next time, to write to their member of Congress about something, to watch some other media, to read certain news outlets. Let us know what you think. Thanks a lot. Bye. Mm -hmm.